The Interchange is brought to you by AES Energy Storage, a pioneering and world-leading storage developer and now energy storage solution provider. We are entering a new era, the electrification of everything, and the grid needs to catch up. That means making it into a more distributed, flexible, and cleaner network. AES Energy Storage is helping unlock the true power of the electricity system with Advanceon. Advanceon is a battery-based energy storage platform that helps utilities modernize their power systems rapidly and at a much lower cost than traditional infrastructure. AES brings 30 years of power sector experience to the storage industry, delivering the most reliable, safest, and best-performing storage solutions. Advanceon can handle any application, and it's always instantly available, without the need to burn fuel or invest in expensive peaking generation or other infrastructure to meet flexibility or reliability needs. It's time to unlock the full potential of the electric power system. That means building a new energy network, transforming the grid with energy storage, accelerating renewables, and electrifying everything. That is the vision and mission of AES Energy Storage. Learn more about AES's offerings by visiting aesenergystorage.com interchange. That's aesenergystorage.com slash interchange. This is The Interchange, conversations on the global energy transformation from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, GTM Editor-in-Chief, joined by my co-host and our senior VP, Shale Khan. Hello, Shale. Hey, Stephen. Well, to mark our reissue of The Interchange, we're asking a pretty big question. What's it going to take to slash carbon pollution in the electricity sector by 80 to 100%? We could use wind, solar, and batteries for a, a large chunk of that. But to go from 50% to 100%, that's going to take a much more diverse range of technologies and market reforms. And we talked to Jesse Jenkins, a well-known energy expert, consultant, and MIT PhD candidate who has devoted much of his attention to this exact topic. What should listeners keep an ear out for, Shale? Well, the whole conversation was really interesting to me. It's a topic that I've been thinking about a lot lately, and I thought this was really valuable in helping me frame how to think about getting to true deep decarbonization. But there were a couple things in particular that stood out to me as being especially interesting and uh, in one case important to think about moving forward. One is we talked a bunch about flexibility. And I think flexibility is a term that right now is starting to make its way through like technical documents and some, you know, reports from government labs and things like that to refer to what's going to be needed when you get to high penetration of variable renewable energy in that in that world, really, what you need is flexibility. Um, And that can come from a bunch of different sources. So we talk about some of that with Jesse. And I just think that's a term we're going to hear more and more as time goes on. The second thing that was basically my favorite part of this conversation came toward the end, where we started talking about kind of the tribalism that has emerged as people talk about, you know, high renewables and zero carbon futures, especially on things like nuclear power. And I thought it was particularly fun to talk about that with the two of you guys, because both of you sort of come from and and had experience with organizations that that sit on either side of, uh, or at least that represent two tribes within that tribalism. So that was a really fun conversation for me to see. Yeah, two really good points there. And the definition of flexibility is certainly changing from second by second to minute by minute and hourly flexibility all the way into seasonal flexibility, which we do talk about 
a bit more. And the tribalism piece is really interesting to me as well, because as you said, Jesse and I came from two different worlds, but we, in this conversation, agree on the complexity of the issue at hand. And I think that a lot of folks who are stuck in certain tribes or groups who are eyeing this deep decarbonization question are bringing a whole range of values um, to this debate, and it influences the way they see the technical challenge. And um, it is just really an, an interesting question of, of the values you bring to the conversation along with the technical parameters themselves. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, there's a I have a tendency at least to zone out a little bit when we talk about what's it going to take to get to 100% clean energy on the grid because it sounds so academic and theoretical. But one of the other things that I thought was important that we talked a little bit about with Jesse was just the fact that the decisions that we're making today, not just from a policy standpoint, but also from an investment standpoint, the generation capacity that we're building today um, are decisions that will affect how we decarbonize 20, 30, 40 years in the future. So this stuff really does matter now. For sure. So before we get into that interview, we're going to talk briefly about what's on our reading list this week. We are voracious readers here at GTM, and we want to share some of the material that informs our thinking. Shale, what's on your list this week? So I've got something that's relevant to this conversation that we have with Jesse, but uh, digs a little deeper on something else. And it's from this magazine that I didn't know about until really recently, but thanks to Twitter, thank you, Twitter, um, somebody pointed this out to me, which is, uh, it's a magazine called Foresight, Climate and Energy Business Denmark. So it's it's based out of Denmark. And Yeah, um, I don't know it. Yeah, I, had, I just found it. Um, and it's great in general. I mean, it goes really deep on renewable energy and clean energy issues. Uh, it's it's talks a lot about wind, obviously, because Denmark has a ton of wind, but it's not just about wind. Uh, it's only a year old. It was the, the first issue was July 2016. And relevant to the conversation today, they did this extremely deep and detailed 17-page, three-part series on uh, that's that's called In Search of a Cure of, for Cannibalization. And it's basically about what are renewables doing to wholesale electricity prices, especially in Europe, but globally, and how is that impacting their future? And what are the potential market reforms, ways that we might change the wholesale electricity markets that would allow us to get further with renewables? Excellent. Well, I'm going to read that one. And as soon as you pass that link along to me, I'll put it in the show notes so that everybody out there can read it too. And now we're going to go into our conversation with Jesse Jenkins. We started off by defining the concept of deep decarbonization. Most of the the plans for how we cut greenhouse gas emissions across the economy as a whole and across the world uh, really rely on the electricity sector to play a pivotal role in that challenge. And that's largely because we have a set of available low-carbon substitutes for the fossil-fueled power plants that we rely on today for the majority of our electricity. Um, so we have wind, we have solar, we have nuclear, we have um, hydroelectric power. Um, we have a range of options to produce electricity without CO2 emissions. And so most of the plans... Uh, that call for for mitigating climate change and reducing emissions or that call for uh, holding global warming below two degrees Celsius as the uh, international community is committed to at the Paris talks depend on the power sector to cut furthest and fastest its CO2 emissions. Uh, And that means really getting to zero emissions or very close to it in the electricity sector. So that's the deep decarbonization challenge. How do we go all the way to nearly zero emissions 
um, by roughly mid-century and perhaps sooner in the rich parts of the world. And there are generally two ways to think about this. People fall into camps or even tribes, um, these academic tribes around renewables-only scenarios and the more diverse technology picture that you've studied and advocated for in your research. How do those camps tend to break down in the way that people are evaluating the sets of technologies and how they, they would work together to decarbonize the electricity mix. Yeah, I mean, we're making tremendous progress today in deploying wind and solar. They're the two fastest growing sources of capacity, um, and in many cases, energy in, in most power systems in the world today. Um, I think they recently surpassed about 5% uh, or 6% combined of the, the U.S. electricity mix. So now about on the same scale as hydroelectricity in terms of its contribution to U.S. electricity. Um, and, you know, as somebody who used to work as a renewable energy advocate in Oregon, helped establish the Oregon Renewable Portfolio Standard there that kind of kick-started the renewables industry in, the, in, in Oregon, you know, this is a huge step forward. We're, we're talking about taking wind and solar from a fraction, a small, tiny uh, share of our energy mix to a substantial contributor. And at the same time, the costs for those technologies are steadily falling, and that also gives cause for optimism that we can continue to harness these technologies as they get cheaper and cheaper and scale them up to become significant players in our energy mix. And so I think you have a class, of, you know, sort of a group of folks who see those trends and continue to project them out and say, why not take that all the way? Um, we are going to see ever cheaper wind and ever cheaper solar and now batteries, which are becoming uh, cheaper and cheaper. And together we can, we can uh, reach very low carbon goals uh, with just that set of technologies, the ones that already kind of have momentum today. And then I think you have another set of people who look at the challenge and, and particularly those who look at the, the long-term challenge of reaching very near zero emissions, the deep decarbonization challenge, and try to model and understand the interactions of resources in that context. And, and like me, they say, hold on, it's actually a little bit more challenging than that. Wind and solar are great resources, but they play a particular role in our resource portfolio. And making them play a different role that they're not well suited for and substituting for resources that they're not um, good substitutes for is going to make this challenge a whole lot harder than it seems on face. Uh, so that's where we come at it. And, uh, and I've been trying to describe the kind of different classes of technologies that we probably want to be pursuing something in each of those categories. And that's uh, variable wind and solar and, and renewables like that that help save fuel and energy costs when they're available. Uh, what I'm calling fast flexing resources like energy storage, demand response, demand side flexibility that can help meet short term variations in, in the power system that we need to do on the order of a few hours or days. And then what I'm calling flexible base resources, which can provide a really solid foundation for a low carbon system and can operate at relatively high utilization rates. So we get a lot out of the investments that we make. Uh, but are flexible enough to integrate wind and solar over weekly or seasonal timescales. So we have these these two tribes that you're describing, and I have, I have a couple of questions about them. One is that uh, there seem to be very strong opinions on either side of this for what is in some ways like an academic debate about how to design it, uh, what we all agree should be a low carbon or zero carbon electricity sector in 2050. And yet, there are really strong tribal opinions here. I'm curious why you think that is, first of all. And second of all, maybe if you can point to some of the ways in which the decisions we make about how we think this sector should evolve will impact, say, policy decisions today. And if you haven't seen that tribalism, just go on Energy Twitter. Yeah, it's on Twitter. For any of our listeners. Right. Well, where else is there tribalism? It's always on Twitter. 
that's a great question. I, you know, I think the reason there's such intense uh, p- uh, opinion or, or argumentation about these two views is because I don't think it's an academic exercise. It's increasingly becoming very real. And uh, the decisions that we make today about the pathways to zero carbon power systems will have significant impacts uh, in the real world in the next decade and beyond. And so for examples of why. So, you know, power plants that we invest in over the next decade are likely to be in operation in 2050. Um, you know, nuclear plants last for 40 or 60 years. Wind farms and solar plants last for 30 years or longer. Uh, natural gas and coal-fired power plants, 30 or 40 years. So we're only really one investment cycle away from plants that are going to be in operation, uh, you know, when we're talking about being at zero carbon. Um, and at the same time, you know, we need continued improvement of a whole range of, of tools that we have available that might be on the market but need to become cheaper, um, like energy storage, Um and nuclear power, uh, and carbon capture and storage, and other technologies that we may not even have at commercial scale today, like longer-term seasonal storage options um, or advanced nuclear designs that haven't hit the market yet. And those will all take many years to develop and bring to market, and in many cases require significant public commitment of policy to help get them to the finish line. And so those decisions you know, that we make today may bind and constrain our options in 2030 and 2040 and 2050 uh, as we approach this really significant challenge. I would also add, uh, in addition to that, there are real policy questions being addressed today. In addition to what we invest in, we've been covering on the GTM site the debate about this California bill that uh, has been introduced in the Senate that's a 100% renewable energy target, um, where I think you would argue it should be a zero emissions power sector target. Those are two different things. And I think it'd be useful for us to just spend a few minutes breaking down that distinction and why you think there's value in these uh, flexible base resources. So as you mentioned, you put a lot of solar and a lot of wind on the grid. And when we say a lot, even in your scenarios, we're talking about orders of magnitude more than we have today, right? So you can get to 50, 60%, I don't know, 70, 80%, maybe even before you really need the flexible base. There's some point in there where it turns, right? But the point being, if we're at 6% today, we could get close to an order of magnitude above that with this current set of resources. So what happens when you do that? You have lots of very short-term spikes and valleys because of intermittency. Clouds come over, there's not as much wind sun, or sun, you know, wind stops blowing. You, you're saying you can solve a lot of that stuff by demand response, turning off the lights, or by energy storage, which is injecting into the grid at that point and pulling during times of overgeneration. Similarly, you have day-to-day diurnal cycles when there will be more solar or wind or less. And again, you're saying, largely speaking, you can meet those things with the what you call the fast flex resources. Talk a little bit about seasonal variations and why that's a different story. Because to me, that seems like the crux of your point of this is why we need these baseload resources. Yeah, there's actually two two challenges there. So there there is diminishing... Mar- well, so increasing marginal challenge uh, to meet those shorter term variations as you push wind and solar to higher shares. Which we've talked um, about here on this podcast before. We had Varun Sivaram to talk about that. The more solar you put on the grid, the less valuable the next kilowatt hour you put on is worth. Yeah. But, and, but also, if you're trying to solve that spike in solar output during the middle of the day and the drop off when the cloud falls or when it, when the night falls with energy storage or demand response, it also becomes increasingly challenging to do that with, with energy storage or demand response. So if, if you 
have um, so this is why I've sort of talked about this capacity factor threshold, which is just a rough rule of thumb. It's not intended to be a you know a hard and fast uh, binding constraint. But the idea is that if you have solar, say, with a twenty percent capacity factor, meaning that on average it produces uh, uh, only one fifth of the installed capacity uh, of solar. Um, that means that if you have solar at 20% capacity factor and 20% energy share, so it produces one-fifth of our energy needs, then that means sometimes of the day or year, solar produces nothing, and other types of the year, it produces 100% of our energy needs, and on average, it produces about 20. Um, and that means that in many hours of the year, as demand fluctuates up and down, you're going to start to have periods where you have excess solar. So that's the one problem. And in order to deal with that, you could install energy storage, and you could absorb that excess solar, and you could shift it you know, to a period of time when you need it. And I'll just note, uh, just to interrupt you for a second, like that's not a theoretical thing. We have negative power pricing all throughout Europe. We even have exactly. it in California today. So this idea of there being excess solar, this is a very real immediate thing in some grids. Yeah. And we're, and that's with wind and solar only at, you know, less than a third of our total energy share in, in most parts of the world today, much smaller in some cases. So this is a real challenge. And so you can solve this with energy storage, but the more you push ener- uh, wind and solar into the mix, the bigger and the wider those those peaks in excess production are going to become. And so you need more and more and more storage to suck in all of that energy and to hold on to it for periods when you need it, because that period might not be the next hour. It might actually be several hours from now before you can discharge and use all of that excess energy. Same with demand response. You know, it's relatively easy to lop off a little bit of peak demand for an hour or two. Um, but if you're trying to reduce demand by 50% for several days or, so, or several hours, it gets much more challenging. So this is where the kind of short-term variability problem starts to become a seasonal problem. Because there are going to be periods of the year where you're routinely in excess of demand, where the wind supply or the solar supply routinely exceeds what you need. And you have to have a huge reservoir around to absorb all those excesses and not use them immediately necessarily, but hold on to them for weeks or even months until you move into the period of the year when you're routinely below what you need. And, and so let's talk about what, how we deal with that seasonal differential today, which is basically uh, operating flexible resources that are fossil fuels generally without carbon capture at the moment and maybe the only renewable version of that is hydro which you actually can use as as seasonal storage you know think about the summer when you have lots of sun and then the winter when you don't have very much in the summer you're going to be in excess of production for months and months and months on end and you have to be able to absorb all of that to use it in the periods in the winter when you need electricity and uh, and so with energy storage you need huge amounts of energy storage and the studies that we reviewed that that pursued this strategy they rely on literally months worth of energy storage. So we could you know, store up all of the electricity consumption in the United States for several months and then live off that store uh, in lean times when the wind and solar output are small. And, and there's just simply no technology on the market today to do that, the, um, ex- with the exception of some places that are blessed with large reservoir hydro storage systems. I want to know what that that storage system would look like and who controls it. Is that like the president of the United States who has access to this the strategic giant energy, <laughs> energy, yeah, strategic energy storage reserve? You heard it here, folks. Yeah. Um, so you're right. Apart from some locations blessed with good hydro resources, we don't really have a good answer to seasonal storage at the moment, uh, like really long duration storage. And I should note, you know, we talk about long duration storage a lot. Right now, most of the time when we're talking about long duration storage, we're talking about like six to eight hours of storage and you're talking about months. So let's let's call it very long duration storage. Now, the thing that always you know gets me about these studies, I understand we're looking at a really long time frame here. And so we're talking about starting to really need this stuff at scale in like 2040. 
or 2035 or something in that range. Uh, is it crazy to imagine that we develop a technology that can scale for seasonal storage by 2035? So I don't think that's impossible. I mean, any you as you guys know, I'm a, a believer in, in continued and sustained energy innovation and investing in new technologies that can expand our tool set. Um, and so, you know, having some very low cost seasonal storage uh, available would be a useful feature in the electricity system. And we should be investing uh, research development demonstration dollars in pursuing those kinds of technologies. Uh, but uh, to say that that the current positive trends in wind and solar are going to carry us all the way to the end while ignoring the fact that that depends on basically the commercialization of a, of a brand new suite of technologies, I, I think is, uh, you know, hides the challenge that we face. So what I'm trying to do is not say it's impossible for us to pursue a high variable renewables based path to zero carbon. I'm trying to say uh, here are the technical challenges that would need to be solved if that's the route we want to pursue. Those challenges are particularly unique to this pathway. So if this is the pathway we're going to pursue, we had better invest in, the, in solutions to that, uh, that set of uh, challenges. And if we pursue other paths, we may make very different investments today. So these are conversations and considerations that we need to make now. Um, and we need to think about how policy decisions shape that, how research investment portfolios shape that, um, and how investments that businesses are making today shape our options. What exactly are we talking about when we refer to seasonal storage? So uh, there are basically two options that have been proposed in the literature primarily. Uh, the first is what the Germans call power to gas, um, which is basically taking excess electricity and using it to run electrolysis uh, machines to make hydrogen, uh, potentially then turning that hydrogen um, into, uh, into synthetic methane which could be used uh, as natural gas replacement in uh, heating and industrial processes. And, and the challenge with that approach is that uh, electrolysis machines are, are still capital intensive. You have to invest in the electrolytic you know, uh, capacity to absorb all that power when you, when, when you have big excesses in power. And yet you don't use the full power capacity very often because you only use that when you have the maximum you know, output from your uh, excess wind and solar production. So we're talking about another very capital intensive investment that would be used only intermittently in order to supplement an existing very capital intensive investment that's only used intermittently, the renewables. Um, and so for that to work, both, like, both the renewable side and the electrolytic hydrogen production side need to be very cheap. Um, the capital costs need to fall probably by an order of magnitude in order to be cheap enough that we're okay having lots of unused capacity sitting around um, and that that doesn't cost too much. So that's the challenge with that route. It's possible that we'll see those cost reductions, um, but it requires sustained innovation on, you know, on electrolysis machines. Um, it requires sustained uh, cost reductions in wind and solar, probably by another order of magnitude to, to make it cheap enough for that solution to be cost effective. The other option, which is what Mark Jacobson's work, he includes hydrogen production as well, but the other option that Mark Jacobson in particular focuses on is um, underground thermal energy storage. Uh, this is something that's been used only at demonstration scale in a few planned communities in Canada and Germany, um, where basically you take, uh, you drill boreholes into the ground uh, deep enough to hit the layer of the earth where the temperature doesn't change very often. Um, it's very constant temperature, uh, and you use some kind of glycol or other tr heat transfer medium, and you basically take excess heat 
uh, from solar thermal or from resistive heaters from electricity. And you pump it underground in the periods when you have extra heat and you heat up the ground and you use the, the ground itself as thermal storage. And then in the winter, when you need that heat, you pull it out. Um, and you could use reversible heat pumps to do both air conditioning in the summer, so take heat out of the air and put it in the ground and run that off electricity, uh, and then pull it back out to heat your homes in the, in the uh, winter. And the secret to Mark Jacobson's you know, studies, the, what, what makes it work, besides some other questionable assumptions um, about hydroflexibility, is that uh, every single building in America would have an underground thermal energy storage system capable of about a month or two worth of collective energy storage beneath that building. So that's the scale we're talking about. This is a technology that has not yet been you know, used in commercial scale and so far only for heating, not round trip uh, heating and cooling, uh, and would have to be deployed virtually everywhere uh, for those scenarios to pan out. Right. And for anybody who's not paying attention to this debate on energy Twitter, Mark Jacobson is a professor at Stanford who's, I guess, probably the the chief of or at least one of the more well-known proponents of the tribe that says we can get there with 100 percent renewable energy, not just zero carbon power. So, you know, I think to recap what you're saying there, seasonal storage is a possible solution, but by no means a guaranteed solution and requires a lot of work between here and there. To get there, I just want to, before we move on to sort of what you're saying some of the more likely solutions might be, let's talk about the other ones that I think often get thrown out in here. We talked about energy storage and demand response. I think the other big one is is expansion of grids and having high voltage transmission that expands the geographic footprint of a given grid such that resources that may be complementary to each other but are further spread apart geographically actually operate on the same grid. So if you have one area of the country or in fact the world where it's you know there's a lot more load in the summer and the other place has a lot more load in the winter or you know you're talking about cross hemispheric grids um that is often argued to be one of the solutions here why do you think that's insufficient or what's the risk there so i mean look the united states is trying to do this to some degree right now we have an enormous wind resource in the midwest and the great plains and we're trying to bring more of that wind east to population centers uh, there's you know the clean wa- clean line transmission project for example that would come from uh, what oklahoma into to link into a hub in arkansas to bring power back into the southeast um, that's the first long distance high voltage dc line that is probably moving forward, uh, although we'll see if it continues. Um, but, br- you know, building interstate transmission lines of any type, uh, particularly several states long uh, to span the entire continent, um, is just logistically and regulatorily quite challenging in, in both the U.S. and in Europe, where you cross international boundaries. Um, if you look at these studies, they all include a substantial, the, the 100%, if you look at these 100% renewable energy studies, they all include a substantial expansion of the transmission grid to intertie different regions the way you described. So this is not an optional solution. This is part of the plan. Um, the 80 to 90% renewable energy futures vision that NREL published, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory published, uh, calls for literally a doubling of the megawatt miles worth of capacity of high voltage transmission in the United States. So to get to 80 or not, let me put that another way, to get to 80 or 90% renewables in the United States, and that's not just wind and solar, that's also including more stable renewables like geothermal and biomass, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory envisions doubling the U.S. electricity transmission grid by 2050. 
So that's theoretically possible. And in fact, it wouldn't actually be that cost prohibitive, given that the transmission only accounts for about 5 or 10% of the total cost of delivered electricity. So even if we doubled the grid, it would maybe only add 5% to our bills. But try building you know, double the transmission capacity in the United States across the U.S. today, the regulatory fights, the not-in-my-backyard obstacles, the cost allocation puzzles that would be required to do that. Um, and I think, you know, anybody who's tried to develop a transmission line would say that's a, that's a stretch goal at best. The Interchange is brought to you by AES Energy Storage, a world-leading provider of grid-scale energy storage projects. AES owns $36 billion in energy assets and serves electricity to over 9 million people worldwide. Ten years ago, recognizing the immense potential of storage to network the grid, AES set up its energy storage business. I spoke with AES Energy Storage President John Zaranchek about how far costs have come down since those early days. Uh, from the earliest projects that we did back in 2008-2009 to the projects that we've been putting online recently and California and other places, we've seen almost a 90% reduction in the uh, installed cost of the systems on a, on a megawatt hour basis. And so that cost is being driven in part by reductions in battery system, uh, reductions in power conversion systems, reduction in the whole balance of plant, and really in redesign and architecting the systems properly to, to get to larger scale. That is, that is compelling. So are utilities surprised when they see those numbers? Oh yeah, no. I think many. I think many people are surprised, and I think we know a number of utilities around the world that have run processes to procure storage where they've been surprised at at the pricing that has come back. In some cases, um, we know of utilities that went in assuming that uh, the price would be would be X, and it came in at half of X, and they ended up procuring twice what they thought. Um, and so that's happened more than once. You know, I was just recently at the commissioning of the, the system that we built in San Diego. Uh, we had the honor of being on the platform with uh, the chairman of the California Public Utilities Commission. And his comment was, we're seeing pricing today that's lower than we expected to see in 2020. And so I think the, you know, this has driven farther and faster than people expected, and it's continuing to go forward. The grid is changing fast. And AES is helping utilities harness the power of battery-based energy storage to make the electricity system cleaner, more flexible, and more reliable. Visit aesenergystorage.com interchange to learn more. That's aesenergystorage.com interchange. Though that's a good segue into, I mean, you're talking about regulatory fights and not in my backyard battles. And one of your prime solutions is, or, or one of the ar arguments that you're making, I guess, just to be more fair, is that we'd be better off at least considering uh, the inclusion in these studies and in this planning of resources that you call flexible baseload, but more specifically nuclear and and carbon capture and sequestration. Let's talk about nuclear, because if we're talking about regulatory issues and nimbyism, nuclear is right at the epicenter. I'm also a little bit confused because I know that Mark Jacobson actually came out and sort of criticized your literature review saying that nuclear, as it's used in the United States, is not flexible. And I've heard people talk about nuclear as a flexible resource, and I've heard other people say, absolutely, it's not. 
I'm honestly very confused about that. Yeah, so let's set the record straight on that. In the United States today, for both economic and regulatory reasons, all but one coal, uh, nuclear power plant in the United States operate at basically base load whenever they're online. The exception is the Columbia Generating Station in Washington State, where during the spring, when you have an excess of uh, hydro availability um, and, and you can't store all that hydro up, uh, they ramp down the, the plant um, to match the stream flows. Uh, outside of the United States, in Germany, where they're now ramping plants in Bavaria to, on a regular basis to, um, on a you know, near daily basis to integrate output from solar, or in France, where they operate nuclear plants, they've all operated nuclear plants flexibly since the 1970s in order to follow load patterns, given the high share of energy they get from nuclear. Uh, this is routine. Uh, so they're, you know, I would say roughly speaking, they're as flexible as a coal plant, um, uh, the conventional U.S. and Western European designs, uh, and um, and more flexible for some of the more advanced designs, including SMRs. The new scale SMR is uh, their their initial deployment of that is planned for Utah, where the the deployment will be designed to integrate with a um, a wind farm and follow the load of that wind farm very actively. So let's move on briefly from nuclear because the other sort of major option that I think lies in your technology portfolio that does not go into the 100% renewables goals is carbon capture and sequestration. So having a potentially a coal plant that has CCS, how might that fit in and how does it differ from what nuclear might be able to do? So with coal with CCS or natural gas with CCS, which in the United States might become the more attractive option soon, um, you know, we have the option to continue to use fossil fuels without contributing to uh, to climate change. It, of course, have other environmental implications that we need to take very seriously, uh, continue mining and production of, of fossil fuels. Uh, but if you can get the capture rates for CO2 at the power plants high enough, above 90, 95 percent, um, then you can run a coal or gas plant uh, in a low carbon mix uh, and have it play the role of a flexible base resource that would help match the variability of wind and solar um, and provide that sort of steady uh, supply that reduces the overall challenge and you know makes the total capacity we need much more appropriately sized to our energy demand. Now, you know, that's a that technology is further away from large scale commercialization than uh, or large scale adoption than, say, uh, Gen 3 plus nuclear reactors, which we are building throughout the world today. Uh, but they're making tremendous progress both in post combustion capture, which means capturing the CO2 after burning the, the, the coal as at the Petronova uh, plant in Texas that went online earlier this year, or the Boundary Dam project in Saskatchewan, uh, but also new technologies um, like uh, uh, a new natural gas-fired power plant that would run on a supercritical CO2 uh, working fluid, so a very different design, not a steam turbine or a combustion turbine, but a supercritical CO2 turbine that would strip the CO2 out at the beginning of the process, uh, so pre-combustion, and, uh, and could potentially operate at much higher efficiency. Now, that's a pre-commercial technology. They're building a demonstration uh, in Texas right now with Exelon, uh, and we'll see how that goes later this year as they try to get online. Um, but there could be a range of new options that open up in that space too. Now, again, should we bet on those? Um, not necessarily, unless we hedge our bets with other options as well. Uh, but there's an, uh, a, if those technologies become available, they can play a very cost-effective role in the overall low-carbon energy mix. Now, you said something really important there, and that is if. And many of the arguments you're making against a um, mostly renewable scenario um, 
seem to be the same arguments against many of these other technologies. You know, we're, we're kind of hoping that costs improve. And so far on a commercial scale, costs are not improving. Experimentation with commercial scale CCS in the U.S. has been a disaster so far. So I wouldn't agree with that. Um, the, so the single IGCC plant, in, Integrated Gasification Combined Cycle Plant, uh, which is a pre-combustion technique that was built, the Kemper plant that uh, is being built uh, by Southern Company, has been a, an engineering and procurement disaster in terms of its the process of building the plant. That's a very different path than others are pursuing. It's very different than the post-combustion technology which uses uh, amine scrubbers to pull the CO2 out of the smokestacks. Uh, there has been tremendous progress in the cost uh, of post-combustion capture over the last several years as that technology has scaled up. So it's not impossible to see future cost reductions, but you're right that it's uncertain, and, and we have to be clear about that challenge as well. So I'm not trying to say uh, CCS has no challenges ahead of it, um, but the interesting case is that even if in, this, in the models that I run across a wide range of different technology costs, I assume significant cost reductions for wind and solar, further 50%, 60% cost declines in solar, 35 40% cost declines in wind, 50 to 75% cost declines in storage, for example. So some of the kind of forecasts that I see from you guys about further, further declines. And then I add existing nuclear costs and existing post-combustion capture costs, and they still show up in the least cost zero carbon mix. Now, you get less of it if it's more expensive and more if it's more expensive. But in no cases do I end up with no wind. Or sorry, with, in no cases do I end up with without any flexible base technology in the mix, even assuming today's costs. So further cost reductions would be great. I think they're achievable, but they're not necessary for nuclear or CCS to contribute cost effectively to a low carbon mix, even if we assume significant declines in the cost of wind and solar. And that's the part that keeps shocking me. Uh, as I see my results and saying, hey, there's something here that's really important. Um, because even if we don't make further progress in these technologies, they appear to be an important part of an affordable uh, low-carbon technology mix. What do you make of the argument that I've heard a couple times that mostly this is a market design problem, specifically in that we don't right now have great mechanisms to compensate for the things that you're saying we're going to need in the future. We don't have a great mechanism to compensate for the ability to provide seasonal storage. We definitely don't yet have the compensation right for flexible ramping ability. We're working on that. California ISO has a new flexible ramp product that it's sort of designing right now. And then if you get all those compensation mechanisms right and let the technologies fight amongst themselves for what becomes a relatively lucrative share of the pie, that it'll naturally work out according to whatever technologies are the best fit. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if we sort of have the right price incentives in place and we don't think about risk aversion or policy intervention or those kinds of challenges, then then, yeah, I mean, that's basically what I model with my optimization models. I say, here's all the technical constraints. Here's all the costs available. Let's find the least cost mix and, and a good, well-designed market with the right price signals would lead to the same outcome as an optimization model. Now, in practice, we have all kinds of policy interventions that we make that tilt those markets in different directions. Uh, and investors, rightly so, are risk averse. And so they need certain policy uh, interventions to make the investments that we want. And so rather than a simple, you know, sort of unconstrained uh, market, we always have a guided market. And we're guiding that market with certain conscious designs that we take in policy and in R&D investments and in market design decisions. And so the reason I think that's important to think carefully about what we want, not just sort of leave it to be, uh, you know, whatever the outcome is, is because we are making active decisions today about what we want. 
We're saying we want 30% renewables in California, now 50%. We're saying we want 50% renewables in New York. We're saying maybe in Massachusetts we want either an 80% low-carbon technology-neutral standard that the governor's office has proposed or a 100% renewables requirement, which some in the legislature have proposed. Uh, so we're making these decisions. We're saying we're going to make uh, investment tax credits available for solar, but not for uh, CCS or for new nuclear. Um, so these are decisions we're making now that guide the, the course that we're on. And I think it's important to, to, to make those decisions with a view towards which pathways are most likely to succeed and, and think carefully about what we really want and what challenges we want to undertake. I want to go back to the tribalism question again, because it's this is like a really fascinating and fun conversation, but it always devolves into tribalism. It always devolves into bickering and there is this ideological bent to the argument that really just frustrates me. Um, so why do you think people react the way they do to this discussion? Can I, can I pose a thought on that? It feels to me like a lot of it comes back to this split in environmentalism. It's a, a little bit broader, wherein there's a, there's a class or a tribe of environmentalists who, uh, who really oppose and will never stop opposing nuclear and any form, maybe not any form, but certainly coal um, and probably to some degree natural gas, especially since fracking, right? This is the Bill McKibben 350.org crowd. And I'm not, I'm not saying this as a pejorative, but I think that that's true, right? They are never going to get behind nuclear. And then there's a, a class that probably would call themselves more pragmatic, whether or not they are, that believe what we should be trying to do is find anything that's that's low carbon and you know focus on that i would also argue that there's another class and that is the solar optimists people who believe that similar to nuclear advocates in the 70s and 80s who thought that nuclear would be too cheap to meter that solar eventually will someday be too cheap to meter and then it will take over the entire world there i think there's a third dimension i think those are both true um and i think there's a third dimension as well which is that in the early, you know, era of debate about what to do about climate change, you know, the Al Gore era, the 1990s and 2000s, um, you had scientists and you had certain politicians like Gore saying, hey, this is a real threat. We need to take it seriously. We should be ramping up the solutions that we have on the table that we developed, you know, largely to to replace oil initially as part of the, the Carter era efforts to, to respond to the oil embargoes. Um, you know, and that was basically onshore wind and solar PV. And, you know, we had these technologies sort of on deck and and we we're going to ramp them up and, and make them work at a larger scale. And I think that you had a, a group of folks, you know, sort of embodied in the Bush administration stance about the George W. Bush administration stance about um, Kyoto and responding to climate change. They were saying, no, 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 no. Those technologies are not ready for prime time. They're too expensive. And what we really should be doing is continuing to invest in better technology. And so every time someone like me says uh, wind and solar are amazing and they're great and they're moving forward and we should keep doing that, but there may be some limits to how far they should go, that I think calls up echoes of those pitched battles where it was simply a fight to prove that solar and wind could even work at all. Right. And, and everybody was throwing up any barrier they could come up with to say we shouldn't even use these technologies. Uh, and so I think there's a whole other class of folks that you know, kind of get triggered by language and by discussion about any kind of limitations for these technologies. And, and rightly so, given the battles they went through. Um, 
But that's not what I'm saying. And that's a very different argument. Um, and it's one thing to say we have tools that are ready to deploy today and that we should be supporting with public policy, but we should also be both improving those tools and expanding our toolkit, than to say, which is what I'm arguing, than to say we don't have anything that works really and we should just keep in the lab doing R&D until we get something that works. Yeah, I mean, now we're bleeding into the other major Twitter-centric rift in this community, which is the like deployment versus R&D thing. And I deeply, deeply do not want to go down that road right now, but it's a similar, like very charged, very opinionated, multiple camps who all basically agree on the, where we need to end up, but like can't find common ground situation. And in fact, now that I'm realizing it, you guys actually are the perfect ones to have this conversation because you are, the two of you are alumni of, I would say the organizations that I define as being in these two camps or in these two tribes where Jesse used to work at the Breakthrough Institute, which is like a very pro-nuclear think tank. I know they wouldn't call themselves that necessarily, but it's obvious and true. So I'll state it. And Stephen, you used to work for Joe Rome, who's the editor at Climate Progress, which is very much in the we need deployment and not R&D and we can do it with existing technologies camp and has done all sorts of work to try to make that case. So I guess my question for you guys, both coming out of each one of those tribes, what was your experience within that? And how has it influenced sort of how you think about this debate? My answer is simple. I re it made me really uncomfortable. And there was a, cer a certain framework that we were sort of expected to write within. And you had to do all these like mental gymnastics to ignore a lot of intellectual arguments. And quite frankly, I was so sick of the tribalism that once I moved beyond that job, uh, I made a much greater effort to understand the wide range of arguments here. Because as we've just discussed, this is so incredibly complicated. To fall into one camp is to ignore how incredibly complex and important this transition is. Uh, yeah, I resonate with a lot of that. I the, Literally the very first article that I wrote, blog post for uh, for the Breakthrough Institute, before I even moved to Oakland to, to officially start working, was a response to one of Joe Rome's blog posts, basically trying to articulate the, the thing I just said to you, which is that there's a difference between saying uh, we need R&D only and we should wait until some magic breakthrough appears that uh, to do anything. And we have technologies that are great and ready to scale up, but need to be continually improved. And we need to expand our toolkit. And so we should invest to do that today. That was literally the article I wrote in 2008. I was coming out of that, you know, uh, two years as a, you know, a paid renewable energy advocate, you know, advancing deployment policies in Oregon. Um, so clearly I was somebody who valued both sides of this, uh, this picture and was trying to sort of diffuse the debate that was happening. And the response, you know, from that immediately became this sort of charged fight. At one point, uh, I was called a, quote, radioactive disinformer by uh, by Joe, which I, I, I still think about putting on the bottom of my business cards. Um, and that's what, you know, and so so respond. So I, I learned very quickly that you could make a very reasonable, um, you know, I think well articulated, but, you know, articulated argument about uh, about this that had nothing to do with ideology or um or uh, tribal preference that could immediately become cast in a tribal uh, context, and and that was exhausting. Um, so, I, and I also like like. But I, I want to be clear that came from both sides. I mean, maybe not either of you specifically. But oh, the absolutely. Camps you guys were both in both sides. I mean, I sat on the outside of all of it and like watched this whole thing happen. I'm continually watching it, 
and and both sides of this debate similarly they all start by saying well we all agree that there's technologies that are great that we should continue to deploy and we all agree that R&D is important and a central tenet of this future and then they take a pause and then with vitriol you know attack the views of the other side so uh- what what I realized in in wading through these debates were, were two things. One that it's really important to try to avoid those uh, sort of heated personal exchanges. That even when you get tarred with something like that, you have to just walk away and say, "Okay, that conversation's over. Uh, there's not a lot of point in continuing." Um, but you get back the next day and you keep you keep at it. Um, and the other thing is that these are really complicated, hard challenges, and we don't know all the answers. And that's what motivated me to go get a PhD at MIT and to study electric power systems and how they're changing um, was to, you know, because I wanted to learn the tools that I needed to have to actually explore and answer these questions for myself and to help uh, communicate that and and. Uh, and inform people as to the challenges that we face, and and so it's not just enough to you know to to get into our camps and 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 troll. I mean to roll back out the same talking points. We actually have to go beneath that and to understand what the challenges look like, um, and and what our options are, and how we expand and improve those options. The other thing that you don't know about Jesse, since you're just listening to a podcast, is that he has a neck tattoo that says "Deep Decarbonization" on it. <laughs> Decarb for life. That's right. Yeah. So if you ever see him on the streets, don't be too afraid. <laughs> Jesse Jenkins is a PhD candidate at MIT. He's a writer, a consultant, a thinker on these issues. Thanks a lot for coming in. This was a lot of fun. Thanks. It was a great conversation. Thank you so much to AES Energy Storage for supporting the interchange. You can find our most recent episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or simply grab our RSS feed right there in the show notes. Copy and paste it into the podcast app of your choice and listen away. Thank you so much for subscribing to this podcast. If you like it, please leave us a rating or review on iTunes. With Shale Khan, I'm Stephen Lacey, and you're listening to The Interchange, a weekly conversation on the global energy transformation. <laughs>